Bibles or John 7 yet, as he instructed. Let me encourage you to do so. We will uh, begin John chapter 7. Uh, we will springboard off and let Graham continue in the deep waters of uh, John chapter 7 in the weeks ahead. Uh, and, and it is interesting, a, I think a uh, timely uh, last sermon before my sabbatical, our family sabbatical, uh, one that really gets at the, the core of uh, why we started this church even 12 years ago, to live on mission, to be the church in the world, uh, Jesus even commissioning uh, us himself. And so I could say much about that. I could say much about how the songs that Pastor Graham picked for this morning are just uh, so timely. And I, I could reference each one of them uh, throughout this entire sermon of different lines that were, were helpful. But uh, I don't have time to do that. I, I have time for a certain amount of things in this message, and I want to make sure we get through them and have good application, uh, both for those of us who have gathered here as believers and both uh, including those of you who are not yet believers. Uh, I'm praying that you would even believe uh, today. So the title of my message this morning is Jesus on Mission. And as I was considering Jesus um, stepping into this stage of his ministry and this, this uh, part of his whole mission uh, for God, it just so happens that I had the privilege of watching a classic movie the past couple of weeks, Saving Private Ryan, and uh, introducing one of my older uh, boys to that movie, enjoying uh, the camaraderie, enjoying the, the willingness to sacrifice for a specific mission. If you don't know, it's a story set in World War II where uh, a specific captain uh, and, and group of soldiers were set on the task to go and save one uh, soldier, Private Ryan, because his three other brothers had already died in battle, uh, died in World War II, and this mother was going to be uh, left with no sons if this son didn't come back. And so it seems outrageous, and yet the leader, commander of the United States Army sent this one captain on a mission to save this one individual uh, to bring him back home and to, to bring him home safely. And so the whole movie goes throughout World War II and them trying to find him. And you can imagine through uh, on that kind of a journey, in that kind of battle, in the midst of World War II, you and your group of soldiers um, just trying to find one guy, not only how hard that is, but how frustrating it was in the light of the whole, the whole war that was going on around the world. And so a lot of these soldiers began griping and complaining. And there's a funny moment in, in the movie where um, the, the, the soldiers look to Tom Hanks, who, who's Captain Miller, and, uh, and say to him, say, Captain, you never gripe at all. And he says back to them, um, I don't gripe to you, Ryben. I'm a captain. We have a chain of command. Gripe goes up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer, and so on and so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You know that as a ranger. And, and he says, okay, sorry, sir, but let's say you weren't a captain or uh, maybe I was a major. What would you say then? 
And Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, says at that point, well, in that case, I'd say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir, worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan, and I am willing to lay down my life and the lives of my own men, especially you, Ryben, to ease her suffering. And you can see in them, he uh, really did have this uh, great view of the mission. He would go on to even uh, say that, I don't know this Private Ryan, and it doesn't really even matter. The man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if going and finding him so he can get home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then that's my mission. The man is the mission. This man understood what, what Jesus understood about his mission. In John chapter 6, in the chapter that we just looked at together as a church, Jesus says in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Or I could replace the word will with the word mission. I came not to do my own mission. To gain followers, to gain popularity, to gain ease, to gain comfort. I came to do uh, the mission of the One who sent me. That being, of course, His heavenly Father. And, and nothing would sway Jesus from that mission, being sent by God from heaven to earth to live a perfect sinless life and, and, to one day, and to make that the truth of God's salvation known to the world and then to one day be willing to lay down his life on the cross to be buried and to take up his life again in the resurrection on the third day, to appear to many for 40-some days and then to ascend back to the right hand of the Father who had originally sent him on that mission. Nothing would sway Jesus from that mission. He understood uh, that it was his Father's will that that would be done. The Apostle Paul understands this in the very same way, this, this aspect of being on mission, where in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in his final words to his disciple and son in the faith, Timothy, pastor at the church of Ephesus, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so in this passage, in John chapter 7, we get just a, a glimpse kind of in between the, the dialogue of John chapter 6 between Jesus and the Jews and in between the dialogue of, of Jesus uh, and, and the Jews now in Jerusalem. There's this kind of change of scene, this narrative, if you will, that really gives us a picture of Jesus living on mission. And to sum up this, this sermon really in a sentence, this is, this is how I would do so. It's, it's this truth that Jesus was not controlled by the world, but by the mission of God. He was not controlled by the, the factors that were going on around his life, uh, whether it was the different pressures, uh, whether it was the timetable, whether it was the response or the mixed response that he got from people. 
Jesus' life, his mission was not controlled by the factors of the world, but it was controlled by the mission of God. And I, I hope to point these, these truths, these realities out to you this morning. And so if you're taking notes, note this. It, it, we'll see certain truths about Jesus living on mission, but I think it's safe to then apply those to our own lives uh, as we would say something like this. Living on mission means we first don't cave to the pressure of the world. I think in these first five verses, you'll see that Jesus doesn't cave to the pressure of his brothers or even uh, widening that out a bit, the pressures of the world. And I think it's safe to apply that to our own life, that as followers of Christ, we too ought not to cave to the pressure of the world. So look with me in John chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after this, after John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, after he declared to them that he was the bread of life, uh, after he urged them to work not for bread that perishes, but for bread that uh, does not perish and endures, after Jesus Having declared that he was the bread of life, he uh, had this mixed response of people both grumbling, uh, both disputing about him, and eventually many of them, it says all the way in verse 66, that many of those followers, those disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. And yet there were some, there were a few of course, his 12 disciples at that point, and, and some from the crowd that said like Peter in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Essentially saying there's no one else worthy of us following and us worshiping. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. After that, it says, John records, that Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Really, nothing has changed since back in John chapter 5, verse 18, where Jesus, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda at a, another feast, um, there was a crowd of, of Jews, the Jewish authorities specifically, wanted to kill him. They were seeking to persecute him and to kill him at that point. And, and so Jesus is in the north. He's around the Sea of Galilee. He had been teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and it says that he sp spent time there in Galilee, probably some six months. For in John chapter 6, we were at the Passover, at the feeding of the 5,000. Um, we'll find here in the next verse that they're at the Feast of Booths, which is some six months later. So for six months, Jesus has been spending his time in Galilee, which is where you would see most of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke focus on. Uh, but John um, brings him back to Jerusalem. But he stays in Galilee for six months because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then verse 2 tells us, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And that's important. Uh, it'll be important in the coming weeks as Graham begins to tease out 
what Jesus is, is teaching there uh, in the middle of the feast in verse 14, uh, what Jesus begins to say even on the last day of the feast uh, there in verse 37, knowing that it's the Feast of Booths is, is important. Uh, the Feast of Booths uh, might also be read in, in God's Word as the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, or another title for it would be the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, this was commanded uh, back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. It's um, defined and described even more in Leviticus chapter 23 with several of the other feasts. Uh, it was a, a feast that happened on the 15th day of the seventh month, which in their calendar would have been about September. October. It would have been in the fall, six months after the Feast of Passover, which would have happened in the first month of their calendar, likely around the April time period. So six months after all of that. It was one of the three feasts that all Jewish males were encouraged to go to Jerusalem, uh, which is important to know because the city is, is hustling and bustling at this point with people from all over traveling uh, to Jerusalem to, to worship in this way. And they, it was a, a time to worship um, remembering what God had done in the past. Uh, they are coming to Jerusalem and it, it's essentially like this giant camping festival. They are coming to Jerusalem to set up temporary tents and shelters with uh, sticks and leaves and, and curtains and all that kind of stuff. So imagine all of these people traveling to Jerusalem, finding their own little camping spot and setting up a booth. And it's to look backwards and remember how the Lord had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land in the midst of the wilderness, where there they lived in tents and in booths, temporary shelters. Even the house of God itself was a temporary tent and a tabernacle at that point. And so as they would come to, the, come to Jerusalem and build these tents, not only were they to not uh, or to live in these tents, these temporary shelters, they were to do no work no work, and to offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord and to worship for seven days straight. I mean, this was a week-long party in the city of Jerusalem with tons and tons of people, just like we saw back in John chapter 5 when there was a large, large crowd. Uh, the people were, were coming. And so with that as, as the background, we could even consider back to the importance of the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament uh, in that Solomon's temple, the permanent structure uh, uh, of God's house, the permanent worship place of God's people was actually dedicated on the Feast of Booths in 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon to rebuild the temple, they celebrated it in Ezra chapter 3 at the Feast of Booths. And it was at the Feast of Booths years later that Ezra read from the Word of God to the people in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
which is why it's it's which is why when John introduced us to Jesus in the very beginning of the gospel of John John chapter 1 verse 14 it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us he tabernacled among us he boothed among us if you will Jesus was uh, the fulfillment of the, the tabernacle of booths. Uh, it, it was to look forward to a time when God would tabernacle with us in, in hopes of enjoying forgiveness and salvation so that we, one day we could dwell and tabernacle with Him forever in heaven. And so it's wonderful to see Jesus fulfilling this and John even highlighting uh, this aspect in, in John chapter 7. And so have that in the back of your mind, this, in, this giant festival, this feast of booths with everyone in Jerusalem, and yet Jesus is still in Galilee, not going there. And so his, his brothers, says in verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. Now, I think these are Jesus' actual brothers. They wouldn't be full brothers in that sense, for Jesus' mother was Mary, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary. So Joseph, in a sense, was his adopted father. And yet, uh, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, 25, that Joseph knew not Mary until after she had given birth to Jesus. But it doesn't say anything about afterwards. And so G Joseph and Mary had several sons and daughters after that, um, whom they raised in the same house as Jesus. Uh, in fact, they're listed in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Their names were James. Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And Mark 6.3 tells us that he had sisters there. Um, they're obviously quite aware uh, that Jesus was perfect having grown up with him. Uh, they're obviously quite aware even of his miracles. John chapter 2 verse 12 says that his brothers were present at the very first miracle that Jesus did in the changing of water to wine. And so they're aware, they've witnessed these things, and, and they come to Jesus while he's in Galilee, near their hometown, and they say to him, they, they urge him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You can hint the sarcasm in their voice. And I think it is sarcasm in, because of verse 5. The Apostle John records that they said this for or because not even his brothers believed in him. Even his brothers disbelieved him. They, they, they saw the miracles. They witnessed the perfect life. And yet, even in the midst of that, there was not a, a trust in him. There was not a belief in him. 
they, they had not looked to Jesus as more than their brother who lived in their house. They hadn't seen him as the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came to forgive people of their sins. And so they sarcastically kind of charge him, saying, if you are who you say you are, and if, you're, if you've come to do all that you say your Father sent you to do, then why are you doing it up here in Galilee? Everyone's leaving Galilee. They're going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Booths. Why would you stay here? Why, why would you stay here and do things when, when no one's around, doing things privately? Everyone's in Galilee. Why not go there and do it publicly? If, if, if you are who you say you are and you, you want to do these things that you say you want to do. They say this because of their unbelief. They say this because they had yet to, uh, to come and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this is why Jesus would respond at one point interacting with his family members in Matthew chapter 12 verse 46 that while he was still speaking to the people behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him but he replied to the man who told him who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus highlighted the fact that his true family were those who believed. And he was not going to cave to the pressure of even his physical family if it would take him off mission from his heavenly family, from his heavenly father, and on mission to save his heavenly, spiritually, brothers and sisters. He would not allow it. He would not cave to their pressure, to their sarcasm, to their critique, this, that, or the other. And we would do well to ask uh, ourselves that same, uh, same type of question. Are we swayed by others, even others that we love, even family members of our own, to get off mission to not follow Jesus as closely, to give in in this certain area, to not believe and trust that, that God or Jesus um, said this. This is important for us to consider, especially in the world uh, that we're in. We no longer live in a world where it's fashionable or favorable or even popular to call yourself a Christian. The more and more that things go in this direction, the more and more will be critiqued. The more and more sarcasm people are going to say, well, if you really call yourself a Christian, then why don't you do this? If you really are, you really believe this uh, that Jesus has said, then, then why not live it out? We're going to continue to face that type of pressure, that type of hostility. And it's not to be unexpected. It is wrong for us to think that um, the world is going to love us. Because as Jesus will show us in even the very next sentences, he too was hated. And why should we expect anything different as, as his followers? And so in, as Jesus proceeds in uh, with this conversation with his brothers, we see that he was unwilling to cave to the pressure of those around him, even those closest to him, his brothers, 
or even the, the world around him. But I wonder, too, we could apply this in another way and say, are there ways and times in which we, too, have looked to Jesus and the Lord and said, God, if you really are God, then why don't you do things this way? God, I mean, if you really loved me, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you provide this for me? Why wouldn't you get me out of those valleys and those sufferings and those moments we just sang about? I mean, God, I mean, if you really want to do something, why don't you do it publicly for me, Lord? Why don't you do something so that everybody can see it for me? And we, like Jesus' brothers, have, have put him into a box and tried to put pressure on the Lord and force him to do things our way rather than than his way. Let him do things his way. And again, if Jesus was unwilling to cave to the pressures of his brothers during his earthly ministry, do you think he's going to be forced to cave to your sinful uh, pressures to do things your way? No, this is why we need to take the, the attitude and the humility of Jesus when he said in the garden, before he was betrayed and crucified, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Yes, Christian, you ought to go to the Lord and pray for deliverance out of that valley, out of that temptation, out of that hardship, and trust that the Lord is able and that he can and pray that he will. But in the end of that prayer, to humble yourself and say, but not my will, your will be done. I'm not going to pressure you to do things because who knows? Maybe the Lord has even more for you in the midst of the valley, more of himself, less of yourself in that. And we have to trust him in that. And so we, not only do we not want to pressure the Lord and have him cave to to our pressures, we also don't want to, um, uh, to, to respond like his brothers did uh, in this passage. But not only did Jesus not cave to the pressures of the world, and nor should we, living on mission, cave to the pressures of the world, in the world in which we live, Jesus also didn't adopt the timeline of the world. So living on mission for Jesus means that we don't adopt the timeline of the world either. We see that in verse 6 through 9. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, here's his response, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. It's clear from Jesus' response that he not only didn't cave to the pressures of the world, but he didn't adopt or give in to the timeline of the world. Jesus said to his brothers, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. You can see that Jesus, living on mission, being sent by the Father, was on one timetable, and his brothers living on mission for themselves on this earthly timetable was on a totally different time scale than Jesus. And Jesus said, you, you, it's, it's time for you to go. If you want to go to the Feast of the Booths, go. But it's not my time to go. And even in that, the structure of that sentence, it's as if Jesus is saying, 
my time has not fully come to go to this feast. Um, if you want to go now and, and be there, go ahead. Um, but my time has not fully come. Jesus was on a radically different timetable than them. And he, and he gave the reason why. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Here, Jesus is, is hinting at the fact that he has a sovereign knowledge of the hatred of the Jews and specifically the Jewish authorities towards him so that if he were to go to Jerusalem, he knew um, that his ultimate mission to give his life in six months' time at the Feast of Passover would have been threatened. And so he was unwilling to go in public to the Feast of Booths at this time, though he'll end up going later, though, though privately for a short time. Jesus is saying, I've, I've got a way bigger mission than you can even understand at this moment. All you can see is just a little teeny tiny glimpse of the picture. All you can see is this one week, this feast of booths. But I'm looking six months out. I'm looking years, decades, centuries, millennia out. I've come to not just present myself and to gain popularity and to gain a crowd for three short years. I've come to save man for eternity. Men who won't live for 2,000 years, those of us who uh, have believed in the Lord Jesus and are gathered here this morning even. And so I'm thankful that Jesus didn't adopt the timeline of his brothers, but held fast to the timeline of his Father in heaven. That, that the Bible would go on to say that even before the foundation of the world, the time was appointed for Jesus to come from heaven to earth. The time was appointed for Jesus to die on the cross. The time was appointed three days later for him to rise from the dead. The time was appointed for him to rise uh, or to ascend to heaven 40 days later. These times were appointed by the sovereign will of God. And Jesus was not going to give in or cave to the pressures of the world and adopt another timeline. He was on the Father's timeline. And it just forced me to think how often in my prayer life, how often in my pastoral life, how often in my family life, how often in my own just private personal life am I wanting God to adopt my timeline? Lord, come on. Do something now. Answer this prayer like in this moment. Do this this year in our church. Do this this summer in our family. Do this in this way, God. And I wonder if you're the same way, where we, we again want to force Jesus into this box to say, do it now, do it on our timeline. And, and the Lord says, I have another timeline. My timeline is better than your timeline. My timeline is, is perfect and has always been perfect and always will be perfect. You can trust me in that. And, and to step back and to not adopt even the, the timeline of the world. D.A. Carson, when he's describing this situation in his commentary, he talked about how the brothers were, in one sense, trying to, to put him in the box, is, is the words I've been using thus far. But Carson uh, says it this way. It says, They had projected onto him 
what they would have done under similar circumstances without reckoning the uniqueness that stamped him. I love that. And don't we often do that as well? We put on Jesus what we would do in our circumstances rather than what he would do. In talking about this text this week and and this sermon uh, with with Graham and, and Colton, Colton gave me a great quote from uh, good old J. Vernon McGee. And he says it this way, This is God's universe, and God does things His way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. I loved that. I could say it this way, You may have a better timetable, but you don't have a universe that has been planned before the foundation of time, even in the very beginning. And so I'm thankful that Jesus in this time didn't adopt the timeline of his brothers. I'm thankful, even though it's hard in my own life, that the Lord hasn't adopted my timeline and given me what I wanted when I said I wanted it. Parents, think about this with your own kids. You want to adopt their timeline for when they get this, that, or the other? When they get to go to bed? When they get to eat uh, their dessert? When they get to uh, play with their friends? How long they get to play video games? Um, how many? No. And we have to submit ourselves to the Lord who, like a good, faithful, godly parent, cares well for their kids and having a specific timeline for them, both daily, uh, weekly, yearly. We can trust that the Lord has a better timeline for us. We trust, too, that... Um, that if that were true of Jesus, we need not think that, uh, that, that it would be different for us. When he says that the world hates him because he says that their works are evil. Later in John chapter 15, verse 18, uh, Jesus prepares the disciples by saying this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Christian as we make this transition really from the timeline aspect that Jesus did not adopt and, and into the, the mixed response that Jesus gets uh, and is unwilling to, to be swayed by, uh, we too need to remember that the response to our life as Christians in the world very likely will be hatred. I trust that there would be some good response. Uh, I trust that there would be some um, faith-filled response. Uh, I trust that there would be some that would want to follow uh, the Lord Jesus because of your witness. But I also have been alive long enough and have experienced the mixed response of the gospel in the midst of the world to know that sometimes you're going to proclaim the gospel and it's going to come back with hatred. 
Sometimes you're going to proclaim the gospel and it's going to come back again with unbelief, critique, pressure. And, and we can't, as Jesus didn't, uh, let those responses sway us from the mission of Jesus as well. That's what we see thirdly in these last few verses in verse uh, really 10 through 13. Jesus himself didn't fear the response of the world, nor should we who are aiming, who have been saved by Christ uh, through repentance and faith and are aiming to live on mission for Christ, we ought not fear the response of the world. So in verse 9 it said that after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But in verse 10 it says, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, then in private. So, so which is it, Jesus? Either you're not going or you are going. Did you change your mind? Some would, you know, some would question, did Jesus lie in this moment, saying he wasn't going to go, but now he did go? It's safe to, to, to say in the language that is used earlier on, there's this, uh, this idea of my time has not fully come to go to the feast. You can go ahead and go, but my time has not fully come. Or, or even some uh, majority um, copies of God's Word that we have even say that my time has not yet come in that. And so he sends his brothers to go ahead and go. But Jesus on his own timeline um, gets there when in, in the perfect time, in the right time. And so he goes up after his brothers had already gone up to Jerusalem. He goes, not publicly, uh, but privately, again, uh, for the Jews were seeking to kill him at this point. Um, and in verse 11 it says, "...the Jews were looking for him at the feast." They expected him to be there. He was a Jewish man, a good Jewish man, and all Jewish men were to report to this feast. They expected to see him in some form or fashion there, and so they're looking for him. And they're saying, where is he? And there was much, look at the word there, much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And yet, look at the description of the Jews, the, the, the authorities there. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Isn't it funny that the brother's encouragement to Jesus was to go to the feast and speak openly about yourself. And yet when you get this description of the crowd there, they were unwilling to speak openly about him. How the tables have turned uh, in that moment. The brother is unwilling to, to do what they encouraged Jesus to do of himself. And yet, Jesus, on mission from his Father, was, was unwilling um, to, to be swayed off that mission. Jesus did not fear the response of the world, which is why he even went to the Feast of Booths in the first place. He'd done fine in Galilee for six months. Uh, he knew that the Jews were seeking to kill him, and yet he was willing to go for a purpose. 
at the right time, albeit, but he was willing to go. He knew that God was sovereign over all things. And so he was willing to go. He wasn't going to fear the mixed response of the Jews, both belief and unbelief, both thinking he was good and also thinking he was leading people astray to sway him. Not only do we see that in him actually going to the Feast of Booths, but we see him, that in the very next verse that we'll pick up in next week. About the, in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus not only went to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths privately, but in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. It was just a matter of time for Jesus. It wasn't that he was unwilling to go or untrustworthy of his father. It was just not the right time. And so Jesus uh, eventually went up. But I wonder if, if we, like some of these Jews, for fear of others, we are unwilling to live on mission as Jesus was. We're unwilling to, in the midst of the feast later this week, in the midst of the week, speak openly and boldly about Jesus at work or at lunch um, or, or with a family member or a friend. Jesus was willing to, at the right time, at the right place, speak the truth in love of who He was and what He came to do. We cannot fear the response of the world. Otherwise, it is going to throw us individually as Christians corporately as a church, universally as, as, as the body of Christ off mission. And we'll focus more on looking like the world wants us to look like than we will what the Father wants us to look like. And we won't hear in the end that well done, good and faithful servant. We are to hold fast to the Lord, hold fast to His mission, and when we get that mixed response uh, of both belief and unbelief, or both love and of hatred in the world, we're not to cave to the unbelief and the hatred. We're to press on in grace and in mercy and in truth and in love and continue to pr proclaim the gospel. For we have been saved by it and we know it's the only means of salvation for those uh, in the world around us. And so don't, don't fear the response of the people. Don't fear the, what people say, uh, even online, as people are so bold and courageous to say one thing or the other online, but put you face to face in person, and they would never open their mouths like that to you. Don't fear what, what people can say about you on this side of heaven. Fear what the Lord might say about you on the other side of heaven. This is important for, for us to consider. And for us as believers, we have to remember that, uh, that this passage, it encourages us to worship Christ who perfectly fulfilled the Father's mission in the midst of unbelief, in the midst of worldly pressure, in the midst of other timelines in the midst of mixed responses. He, he did it by living a perfect sinless life. He did it by dying a sinner's death on the cross. 
He did it in a small way, even by going from Galilee to Jerusalem in this, this passage. And if you consider for a second, uh, this is the last time Jesus, we know of at least, would make this journey before He was crucified. Uh, much of His earthly ministry was spent in Galilee. And, and, and so just imagine Jesus in one sense is, is walking to the cross even six months before going to Jerusalem on mission. Yes, to eventually speak in the midst of the temple at the Feast of Booths, but um, to stay and minister in and around Jerusalem where He will one day give of his, his very own life. Jesus wouldn't walk that path that He'd walked several times in His ministry, many times over His lifetime. This would be the last time with His eyes kind of on the cross. And if, if that's the case, if Jesus was willing to go to Jerusalem to finish the mission, then we too ought to be able to fulfill and, and walk out the Father's mission given, a, given to us by Jesus Himself. Consider that Jesus died and He rose from the dead in Jerusalem and stayed there for a short time. And yet, after that, He directed His disciples to meet Him again in Galilee. To go to a mountain that He had directed them to. And it would be on that mountain that he would give his disciples, his followers, God's mission. We call it the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By who? The Father. Just as the Father had all authority to give him a mission, now Jesus has been given this authority to commission us. And he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very ends of the age. This is the mission that Jesus, given by God the Father, has given to us for us to live out. And if Jesus lived on mission and did not cave to the pressures of the world. He did not adopt the timeline of the world. He did not fear the response of the world. But He went to the cross and He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven to save a man. To save man. It was on mission to seek and save that which was lost. Why would we not take the mission that God had given Jesus to give to us and run the very same kind of race. Not caving to the pressure. Not adopting our own timeline. Not fearing the response of the people around us. But being faithful to our enlisting officer who has commissioned us. Wanting to make him proud. Saying, thank you, sir, for this mission. I'd be happy to give my life, sir, for this mission. It's a willing, uh, a worthy effort Sir, to give my life for that kind of mission. Why would we not be willing to do that in the same way that, that Christ was willing to do that? I, I think we ought to, not only as individual Christians, but as a church. What a challenge, what an example we have in, in this brief little passage 
between these dialogues of John 6 and John 7. But if you come here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you're more like the brothers living in their unbelief, as John described them in, in John 7, 5, than you are in belief, uh, it's, in, it's important for you to consider your own heart. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ alone to save you? The brothers hadn't. John made that clear, being inspired by the uh, very Holy Spirit Himself to give this reality of their, their inward heart that no one else could see but Jesus. They were in unbelief. At least in John 7, they were unbelief. Because the, the neat thing about the Word of God is that it gives us other reports of some of these brothers later on. And while they were in unbelief, in John chapter 7, critiquing their brother, being sarcastic to their brother, we could fast forward through the pages of Scripture to find that at least a couple uh, of these brothers who were in unbelief in John chapter 7 come to faith in Jesus, not only as their brother, but in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, later on in, in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says that Jesus appeared to many of His disciples, including His own brother, James, after His resurrection. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that after Jesus' ascension, uh, on 40 days after His resurrection, when He went to be with the Father back in heaven, it says that the disciples were gathering in the upper room, and there with them were His brothers and His mother. What happened? What happened from John chapter 7 to Acts chapter 1? Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection caused them to believe that Jesus was the one true and living Son of God, the only one that could offer them eternal life. And they went from being unbelievers to being believers. In fact, Acts chapter 15 describes Jesus' brother, James, uh, as an apostle and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the man, the brother who's called Judas in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, um, as any right person would, took the yes off of, off of his name in the end and didn't want to be known as Judas any longer because of uh, his other namesake. And we know him as Jude in the New Testament, writing that epistle, the letter of Jude, um, towards the end. Jude is mentioned as the brother of James, also the brother of Jesus, who's now become a believer in Jesus. And so we can see that the crucifixion and the resurrection, it not only took timid believers like the disciples and turned them into bold and courageous witnesses on mission for Jesus, but the crucifixion and the resurrection turned unbelievers into believers. Physically estranged brothers into spiritually united brothers living on mission for Jesus. And if you come here this morning being described 
more like the brothers of Jesus in John 7 in unbelief, I urge you to repent and trust Christ this morning and to be described like James and Jude later on in the rest of the New Testament as giving their very own lives for Jesus, having found their hope of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life in their brother, in the Son of God, the Son of Man, who through faith becomes our brother uh, in in an eternal, heavenly, spiritual relationship with God as our Father, whom we live on mission gladly to serve, even if it means death here on this earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of those who have come in here in unbelief like the brothers. And while it took six more months for them to go from unbelief to belief in the narrative of the gospel when you died and rose from the dead, Lord Jesus, it does not take another six months For we can look backwards and see your death and resurrection on the cross. And we know that our timetable is not your timetable. And while your timetable might be for some more time to go on in the life of one of these individuals here, Lord, I pray that they would begin considering it even now to ask themselves, why would I not put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior to experience forgiveness and eternal life today? For another day is not ever guaranteed for us. Lord, that's my will, and yet I pray your will would be done. And pray that on whatever timetable you choose to work on, you would reveal yourself to these individuals both this morning, in the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead, knowing that you will not leave any of your, your own without revealing yourself to them that they might believe. Lord, encourage us as Christians, encourage us as a church this morning that we would not cave to the pressures of the world as the pressure seems to and grow heavier and heavier upon our shoulders. May we run to you, Jesus, who invites us to come if we are heavy burdened and heavy laden, and you will give us rest. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be forced to adopt a timeline that the world puts on us, but we would walk by faith, trusting that you will direct our steps in your timeline. And Lord, when we go out this morning, this, this afternoon, to be the church in the world. Let us not fear the response of the world, whether they hate us, critique us, laugh or joke or are sarcastic about us, knowing that at the same time, Lord, you might use our faithfulness on the other side to bring about awareness of sin, a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faith in in someone else. Lord, help us to be faithful to you on mission, knowing that you have commissioned us. It is our joy to serve our enlisting officer. 
And I pray, Lord, you would help us in that as you've promised, to be with us always and to strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.